0: great surprise for everybody will not be that there's been a banking crisis. is that we come out the end of this, probably with a mild recession, with the government running the financial system. Hello, and welcome to the Fix the Future show, the podcast where we look
1: at how investors can do good while also making good returns. I'm Algy Hall, the investment editor of Fix the Future, and I'm joined today by Professor Russell Napier. Russell is an acclaimed financial historian and market strategist. He writes a solid ground newsletter in which he shares his global macro thinking with a readership of mainly professional investors. He's also the co-founder and keeper of the Library of Mistakes, a library and reading room devoted to the study of financial history and associated mishaps. He's the host of the library's podcast too. And Russell is also the author of two books, The Anatomy of a Bear, a fascinating study of four bear markets, And more recently, the Asian financial crisis, 1995 to 98, the birth of the age of debt. Hello, Russell. Hello. So, um, Russell, just if we start, your book, um, The Asian Financial Crisis, is, I think, originally um, meant to be the first chapter in a book intended to take us to the pivotal moment that you believe we've arrived at today. Um, There's clearly a lot to say about that history, seeing as... um, a chapter turned into an entire book. Um, but uh, if, if you can, could you give a brief out- outline of um, what you believe has been happening to the financial system since 1995 before we get on to how that may shape the future?
0: Sure. So the reason it's relevant is that the defining fact in the world today is debt, the levels of debt, relative to the size of the economy, relative to the size of private sector cash flow. So that book tries to get to the point of why are we here? How did we get here? Uh, and then we'll spend a lot of time talking about where we go next. Uh, the fundamental reason we got here was a, a target for central banks of inflation, not credit. So they ignored the buildup in credit in the system. But in the book specifically says it was the devaluation of the Renminbi in 1994, which triggered massive devaluations across Asia, and then the crucial decision they all made, which was to, was to lock in those incredibly cheap exchange rates two consequences from that. One, they became rather large buyers of United States treasuries. So they uh, depressed what we refer to usually as the global risk-free rate. And secondly, by having grossly undervalued exchange rates, they exported deflation to the rest of the world and kept inflation low. So if you live in the developed world post these devaluations, you got remarkably low interest rates, partially due to their Asian central banks buying off uh, fixed interest securities, and you got very low inflation. So you got the perfect opportunity to borrow more money, and we did. So I relate our debt-to-GDP ratio to, yes, a mistake by central bankers, but actually this bigger structural issue. And we created a whole new monetary system in 94 to 97 and didn't really notice it, didn't pay any, uh, didn't pay any attention to it. I think Paul Volcker, he had long left office, would talk about this as the non-system. He would call it the non-system. Uh, And just how dangerous it was that there was no agreement here. This was imposed. It wasn't agreed by all the parties. And I think we're living with the consequences. And the consequence is that we have the highest level of debt to GDP in the developed world ever recorded in human history. Uh, We don't have all the data, as you know, for the whole of human history. But it's certainly above World War II levels when we add the government and the private sector together. And therefore, almost certainly, is the highest level of debt to GDP ever recorded. And that is the number one thing that will shape all of our futures, sustainable, unsustainable, whatever, that's the starting point that we now have to begin to cope with. And just one final point on that. This, this thing, it didn't just push interest rates to low levels. It produced them, pushed them to 5,000-year lows. At least we have interest rate history going back to the Sumerian period. So let's just say all-time lows. So all-time high debt relative to the economy, uh, also relative, to, I think, to cash flow, certainly at current interest rates and uh, all-time low interest rates, and it's over. The, the low interest rate bit is over. So now we've got to work out what happens next. But I think that's what the book is about. It's about how we got where we are. But I think people are now more interested in where we're going.
1: No, ab- absolutely. I mean, I mean also, if we had, we've had this system which um, wasn't an agreed regime, as you as you've said, but um, it was a system that um, carried on. We had low, low inflation um, through that time.
0: What's changed? What's um, been, been the thing which is... Yeah, so anybody listening to this should really now go to the Bank of England website and read a little article they wrote called How Money is Made. I think it's kind of compulsory reading for everybody. And when you do that, what you discover is that nearly all the money in the world is made by commercial bankers. It is not made by the government and it is not made by the central bankers. That comes as a shock to most people, even people with a great deal of experience in financial... Uh, markets, it comes as a shock. So if we failed to produce enough money to produce inflation, it has been, in recent years anyway, due to a lack of bank credit growth after the GFC. Not only were the bank balance sheets in a mess, we we did regulate them pretty heavily as well. So the banks were not in the business of extending credit and creating money. And then one morning, I'm going to date it to April 2020, everything changed. Because somewhere in government, somebody realized that you could make the banks lend as much money as you wanted them to lend if you guaranteed their credit risk. Now, this is obviously COVID. Uh, We basically closed down the economy. The private sector, households and corporates were desperately in need of money. And the governments obviously used fiscal policy, but more importantly, they used the banks. And they guaranteed lots of bank lending. And we're paying for that now as taxpayers. There are billions of pounds worth in this country of defaulting Uh, corporations that we're paying for as taxpayers. So suddenly, the government's realized something. There is a magic money tree. (laughs) (laughs) If we look at government debt to GDP, we might say, oh, well, they're completely tapped out. They couldn't possibly borrow any money. But this is a kind of contingent liability. It's not directly on their balance sheet. They guarantee bank credit. The banks lend money. And this was the problem and why we've got such high inflation. They lent so much money. They created so much money. We have inflation. And to put it into context, if you're in the US, it's now over 40% of all the dollars ever created in history have been created since the start of COVID. It's Amazing. quite an impressive number. And then all the central banks are all scratching their heads and saying, why do we have inflation? Well, that's why we have inflation. But I blame the central banks a little bit. But remember, if the governments basically force commercial banks to lend, and this is important, the governments are in monetary policy. It's always easy to say the governments do fiscal and the central bankers do monetary. But if the more, and we're witnessing this in the last couple of weeks, the more the governments get involved in the banking system, the more the governments are in the monetary policy business. So if I had to blame anybody for this surge in inflation, I think I'd look more to government, actually, than central bankers. Right, right. And um, I mean, also in
1: terms of this backdoor routes into into monetary policy for governments, I mean, um, it, it's kind of been rediscovered, hasn't it? There, there are historical... Um, Precedents
0: for this. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's an excellent point because really for the whole of the post-World War II period This is how monetary policy was run and we didn't really have independent central bankers. certainly not in Europe we absolutely did not have them and uh, You may be old enough to remember this great quote that the monetary policy of the United Kingdom was was run by the Bank of England governor's eyebrow And it was said that the Bank of England governor just had to raise his eyebrow to control monetary policy And of course, that's correct. That is exactly how it worked uh, because in this period, if the government can control the growth of bank credit directly, it doesn't need interest rates to do so. It, that's not the way monetary policy works. Uh, it works through a policy called credit control. And if credit, bank credit is directly linked to the supply of money, uh, if, you, if the governor of the Bank of England said to you, you run the United Kingdom's biggest bank, I want you to grow your balance sheet at 10% this year, and you're at 10% by October, well, he might call you into his office or her office these days and raise his eyebrow. And that's what that statement actually means. So for you're absolutely right. For a very long period of time, this was the status quo. And there is a very good book on it by a, a French academic called Eric Monet called Controlling Credit, which is a history of the post-World War II French banking system, which may sound like the world's most boring book after, after my own. But uh, actually, if you want to know how this system works, read the book and then ask yourself the question, who is the monetary authority of the United Kingdom? Is it the central bank still or is it the government? And if you ask yourself the question in the context of what we already know about 1945 to 79, you might come to a radically different answer to the one that you get from reading the front page of the Financial Times.
1: And what are the options that um, potentially we
0: have as being in a world of very indebted countries? So there are only five options to bring this down. Assuming that we agree that the target is to bring it down, I think we have to agree that now given where it is. But if, if that is the target, there's austerity. I think there's no political appetite for austerity. There's default. Default actually often gets you into a worse place. It's not clear that Greece, having defaulted, or let's just say restructured its debt, is in a better place. Uh, the default of Lehman Brothers didn't take us to a better place. So default is not really uh, an option. Very high real growth is what we all have to hope for, and that would be have to be a productivity revolution. We have a fairly good idea on what labor growth is. We used to say that, of course, until COVID, and our labor growth projections got even worse. But anyway, the, you know, labor growth doesn't transform itself. So we need a real surge in productivity growth. So that's number three. That one is probably beyond the control of government. That may just have to spring from the private sector. We maybe we could discuss that because the number one thing that could drive that would be a collapse in the price of energy. Then you've got hyperinflation to destroy your debt. And finally, this thing called financial repression, which is where I think we're heading to because the other one of those would be uh, the best answer: high real growth, but is mm-hmm. unlikely to come along. And the other three, I think, are politically highly unlikely to be adopted. Which leaves us uh, in financial repression. So that is inflating away debt. That's to be absolutely clear: it's inflating away debt, but it's inflating away debt at a pace that doesn't frighten the horses, or in this case, the savers. So, it, so in, in it's a very kind of long term attrition of the
1: value of saving.
0: Yeah, well, if we we take two examples, after World War Two, the French managed to reduce their government debt to GDP ratio all the way to a very low level in about five years. But they did that by producing inflation of about 45 to 50 percent per annum and interest rates six. So you can do it really quickly. Now, a lot of people will say, well, why would anybody lend money to the government at six if inflation is 50? Uh, Mm -hmm. And the answer is they nationalized all the savings institutions. Uh, Also, the the savers of France were seen as the enemy. They were seen as the collaborators. So there was a moral case to say that the only way you could have money post-Vichy France was to have been morally corrupt. So they could do it quite quickly. Now, the United Kingdom was different, and we, we achieved exactly the same thing, but we didn't finish it until about 1982. So a different way of doing it, but not through that rate of inflation. But as you say, it takes a very long time if you're going to do this through the repression route, I mean, we're talking well over a decade here to get this back to a reasonable level. So a reasonable level is something worth discussing. We're currently at 300% of GDP for the government plus the household sector plus non-financial corporate. And we certainly want to be much closer to 200. So I'd go for at least a decade. And
1: if, if this if this happens, I mean, what, uh, what would we be expecting to see in terms of, um, how, how um, the government is using the
0: banking system. Mm. So the government uh, can use the banking system. So first of all, you politicize credit, which is evident. It's everywhere and it's, you know, it's so obvious and so everywhere. We don't even notice it. I mean, the guarantees that have been handed out through COVID were not handed out to everybody. Only certain types of companies got those. Only certain types of individuals got those. The guarantees that have been handed out post the invasion of Ukraine, a lot of them to big energy companies, uh, such as NL of, of Italy, are clearly you know, targeted at one sort of thing that the government wants to uh, promote. Uh, renewables will be another thing. You know, the greening of the economy will be something else the government wants to promote. That is going to get a different form of guarantee. The ECB is talking about the greening of its balance sheet. Uh, that's a central bank. That's not a commercial organization, nor a charity. It's actually a central bank greening its balance sheet. So you're politicizing the whole thing. But ultimately, the end product is that if you have enough growth in bank credit, you have a very high growth in in money and more inflation. Now, the big question is, well, wait a minute, if the only way to get more money is to have more debt, how do we bring down our debt to GDP ratio? Uh, And that means clamping down on non-bank credit. Let's call those the bond markets, the commercial paper markets, the note market. Mm -hmm. So this politicization is fascinating because not only are we picking winners, there has to be a loser. There has to be somebody who really just can't get credit anymore at the right price. And if you're an investor, this is crucial, because there are now, in a politicized system, there are winners, but there are also losers. And we now have to look out over the next 10, 15 years to see who's going to be getting the cheap credit and who's not going to be getting credit. And also, I mean, it's, it's,
1: it's, a, it's a very interesting question, that question of what, how investors kind of play this. <coughs> Because when sectors get a lot of capital, they can become very inefficient, yeah. as we know. And if they're starved of capital, so I mean, there, there, there are certain um, views that um, you get creative distraction, which many people have bemoaned not seeing in... Um, um, follow, following the great financial crisis. I mean,
0: where where do you think investors need to position themselves? Yeah, so obviously there's a couple of great books on this. Um, you can tell I'm a librarian, I keep <laughs> mentioning books. So they're, they're both capital account and capital returns uh, on the capital cycle, which mm-hmm. I, I hope people who are listening to this know about. I run a course in finance and we have teach on the capital cycle on that as well. And of course, a capital cycle can be grossly distorted by cheap government finance. The question, of course, is how long does it take? Now, the post-World War II period may have been exceptional because we were literally rebuilding the industrial base, particularly mainland Europe. Uh, But I think it can take a long time. Now, the reason I think it takes a long time is a separate issue, but uh, a separate issue that leads us to the same conclusion, and that's China. If we head to a Cold War with China, the degrees of investment we need to make are absolutely massive. I mean, in a Cold War where we're not trading so much with China, the, the scale of the reinvestment will be huge steel would be a good example a very simple example so yes cheap government finance ultimately can produce too much physical capital too much physical capital can reduce returns and the government in a whole doesn't really have a good track record at the allocation of capital i mean last time we tried it we ended up with british rail british leland and concord uh, none of which turned out to be great successes you have to be of a certain age to realize they weren't great successes but believe me if you're Old enough, you remember what a failure they were. But how long does it take? So I would argue that, yeah, we will ultimately distort the capital cycle, but it could take a very long time. And in the meantime, for several years, I don't know about a whole decade, but for several years, there are still opportunities in the equity of the companies that benefit from the politicization of capital that really, in conjunction with the Cold War of China, brings us a reindustrialization industrialization of, of the developed world and its allies. And you know, a lot of that may be in emerging markets, but a lot of that might be in Sunderland. With the banks themselves, how, how investable
1: are they in, in, in a situation where they're basically being driven by someone
0: else? Yeah, that, that is one of the most difficult questions in finance, I think, because, first of all, world well, ex-US developed world banks are trading at big discounts to their book value. So they are discounting something pretty awful. How awful? Captured by the government? I don't know. Do we have any other banking system in the world which has long been a puppet of the state? The answer is yes, China. And what sort of valuations do they trade at well actually not that different from where european banks currently trade at so to some extent i think the valuation reflects something pretty awful and then you've got this problem of the short term in the shorter term if the governments do play this role in banks banks have pretty good credit growth it's not where we are for the last couple of months but up until the last couple of months it was doing pretty well so you might surprise on the upside or my forecast would be that they will surprise on the upside in credit growth the credit quality is going to be very good uh, because a lot of this is guaranteed by the state. Uh, so these things surprise on the upside. Now, I think in the long run, I have to agree with you that you really don't want to be a shareholder in what is now another arm of the state. But for the next several years, it could surprise on the upside. And I think maybe what we see happening in the last couple of weeks is maybe people are beginning to understand just how far the state will go to protect these big banks now because it needs them. You know, this conversation we've had to to date imagine it without the big banks if you see the big banks as the answer see the problem is from 2009 to 2019 they were the problem neither the solution i think your question is a good one in the long run they may prefer to have been the problem (laughs) Uh, being the solution may not be a great long time but they're falling over themselves to help the government they're just so fed up of being the problem they want to be the solution and i think on the short run three four years that probably means they make more money than we think they're going to make
1: very interesting. And also, just in terms of the kind of interventions we've seen um, in in the U.S. and in Europe with Credit Suisse, um,
0: do, how, how does this play to the, the narrative of financial Th- This is exactly playing to the narrative because I think the, the important thing is the contrast with 2007-2009. It's fascinating. Every time you see someone writing about what's happened in the last week, they mention 2007-2009. Why don't they mention 2020? 2020. 2020, we had the biggest... Uh, in this country, theoretically, anyway, the biggest decline in GDP since 1707. I don't remember banks going bust. I don't remember bankruptcy rates soaring. Why not? Because the government intervened. Not the central bank. The central bank did something. But the government intervened more forcibly than you could ever imagine. The government decided we weren't going to have a 2007-2009. And that's what's happened in the last two weeks. They've shown again that they are exceptionally proactive. The government... Now, it's bizarre because the government's doing all of this and the central bankers are getting all the all the headlines. But every time the central banker tries to do something, and look, let's be honest, it has to involve pain to bring down inflation. That's the history of bringing down inflation. The government straight in and, and, and tries to stop it. Or it might stop it by subsidizing our energy bills. It might stop it as it did during COVID by getting us lots of cheap credit flowing out. Uh, it might stop it. There's a fantastic uh, deal they've done with the FCA, which is going to stop foreclosures on mortgages. The, 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 the attempt by the central bankers to control inflation is being more than offset by the government. This is different from 2007 and 2007 to 2009, there was an ideology that central bank and lower interest rates could get us out of this. And not until the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers did that change. But really, since the bankruptcy of Lehman, since the bailout of AIG, which I think was two days later, the government throws its balance sheet at every conceivable problem. And I find it bizarre that we're still sitting here and not realizing that and still focusing on. On interest rates. So the world has changed. We're basically eradicating a lot of private sector risk. So the crucial thing today is how quickly the governments have acted. Their balance sheet is on the line in Switzerland. Uh, there is a backstop in here for uh, UBS to put bad assets to the government. Unbelievable that that's happened in Switzerland. The government of Switzerland was so desperate to do this that it twice broke contract law. At least we'll find out in the courts in due course whether they've broken contract law, but I think they have. Once again, unbelievable that the government of Switzerland would break uh, contract law and uh, take wealth from savers, potentially uh, a breach of the law. Uh, And in America, uh, this is why Janet Yellen blows hot and cold on backing up large-scale deposits, because we all know the FDIC doesn't have enough money to do that. So that's going to be the government's balance sheet. And this is fundamentally different from 07 to 09. The government's balance sheet is on the line instantly to defend the private sector. In my opinion, that makes a huge difference. So we'll come out the end of this cycle I think it'll be milder than people think because of the scale of these things, but the great the great surprise for everybody will not be that there's been a banking crisis, is that we come out the end of this probably with a mild recession, with the government running the financial system, which ultimately is more important than a, uh, you know, a problem associated with bank instability.
1: And um, also in terms of this scenario, do you think central banks are- savvy to this? This this is
0: the kind of thinking which is developing inside central banks. I'd like to think that you couldn't not be savvy to this. I mean, given that the Bank of England has on its website a big article saying that money is money is made by commercial banks, and then witnessing what the government's doing with the commercial banks, how could they not be savvy to it? But in public, at least, they pay no interest to, or pay, pure, pure choice of words. They pay no heed to the quantity of money. They seem to be oblivious to the role of the quantity of money. So I think in private, they must clearly be aware that if the governments are going to get involved in the banking system, that they are redundant. Now, they're not ever going to use those terms and those words, but you'd have to be blind not to be sitting in a central bank saying, well, wait a minute, are we really the independent central bank if this is happening? I mean, yield curve control is a second way in which the power to control monetary policy would be stripped from the central bank. Uh, If we decide to mandate a yield curve, which is backed up by purchases from savings institutions, not the central bank. In other words, the government tells us as savers what yield we're paying government bonds at. Then both the price and the quantity of money are controlled by the government. Now, the central bankers, I mean, my question to central bankers is, what are you going to do all day? Now the good news is they're academics, so there's lots of learned papers they can write about their own impotence. Uh, But I think apart from doing that, there's not much they can do all day if the government controls the growth in bank credit and we get to a stage where they also control the yield curve. And that is where the US was from 1940, early, early, uh, just after Pearl Harbor until 1951. And if you read the history of the Fed then, they literally did sit around and write learned papers all day because there was nothing else to do. So this is not a revolution, it's an evolution. It's happening in front of our eyes, and we're just kind of pretending it's not happening. I don't think they can be pretending though; they must be exceptionally worried.
1: Can, can I also ask you about um, industrial policy? And we um, th- we've we've, we've, see, we've seen a lot more interest um, with things like the Chips Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, and um, talk of similar things in, in Europe as well. Um, I, I, w- I was just wondering um, what role. Um, industrial policy you think will play in this new regime and also whether um, it could have any um, good outcomes for productivity.
0: Yeah, well, we can quote the president of France on this because he said, I'm not afraid to admit that the government of France is backing industrial policy. So I think when a president says something like that, you should at least listen. I don't think we are listening. And then we have the Inflation Reduction Act, which you absolutely say is carrots and sticks. I think there's so many carrots in it that people say oh, it's still you know, not the state because there's so many carrots in it, but it's the state through carrots and a few sticks trying to push capital to where it wants capital to be. So this is the new developed world. Now the interesting thing is what forms of CapEx we're gonna get from this. One of them will clearly be more sustainable, greener technology. That's an interesting development. I'm not aware that we've done something like that before. In other words, we're not improving probably the efficiency of energy. But we are improving its uh, emissions. In other words, will it be a massive increase in productivity? There'll be some increase in productivity because hopefully we'll have more uh, more people employed. But even that, I mean, we're pretty close to full employment. So that's an interesting thing. That's massive capital expenditure, which may not play a huge role in producing productivity. Now, if it slashed the price of energy, it would. I mean, the, the, as a financial historian, and we're looking at you know great productivity leaps forward. There's many technological changes that have done it. But anything that really collapses, the price of energy is a key one. So if that's what it brings, fair enough. But if it doesn't bring that and brings substitution, this is kind of substitution capital as opposed to capital that creates more production. Uh, It's not going to add that much to productivity unless we get the energy collapse. The second one is we might end up just producing a lot of stuff that's currently produced in China. So once again, it's substitution for something that we're not getting access to any, anymore for geopolitical reasons. And then another one is defense, which is the least productive form of investment you can possibly imagine. I'll say that with some trepidation, because some things in crypto have probably been even less productive than, than defense. So yes, the good news is we're gonna have a capital expenditure boom. The very good news is as an investor, there's lots of places to make money in it. Uh, I think the, the other sort of thing is, yes, there'll be some short-term pickup in productivity as we add more capital. But it's not going to be as productive as other sort of industrial, let's call it an industrial revolution for want of a better word. It's not going to produce the sort of growth and productivity, I think, that we've associated with these scale of CapEx booms in the past. But it's a good thing. You know, it's a a positive thing uh, for investors. But I'm not so sure it's going to give us that productivity revolution, which we absolutely need, given where we are with uh, uh, the growth in the workforce in, in the developed world.
1: Also, in, in terms of um, what, um, what we're talking about, a lot of the ideas seem quite radical to um, consensus thinking. I was just wondering, in, in, hist- in terms of the history of um, these kind of policies, how is it sold to the public? How do people yeah. um, take a, it up and it's run it? That's a great
0: question it? because we've only really done it during warfare before. <laughs> so, that, so it's sold to the people and we need, the state needs to mobilize the savings of the people. To defend us in a war that's how it's sold to the people the problem is it then lingers after the war uh, most noticeably as i mentioned in the 45 to 79 period so you need an emergency to sell it to the people but we have lots of emergencies we have a hot war in europe we have i think a cold war with china and we have a climate emergency i, I call it emer- the age of emergencies now you could i think other people listening to this might say there's an emergency of inequality it's not too difficult to go around and put the word emergency in front of lots of things. Uh, I think that's what's happening if you look at the political discourse today or the newspapers, the word emergency is used all the time. Cost of, uh, cost of living, emergency. So there has to be an emergency. Uh, war is the usual emergency. Uh, a Cold War with China would very quickly take us to that emergency. Not in terms of defending us from a hot war with China, but just in terms of all the goods and products we wouldn't be able to access from China. So that's how you sell it, a national emergency. It is creeping anyway. I mean, there are lots of instances in the United Kingdom. A very interesting letter to the FT yesterday, or a leaked thing from the uh, USS the University Pension Scheme System, about how they don't like the fact that they're being crowded into certain investments that they don't think will be good for their beneficiaries by regulation. Uh, You know, this, I mean, we've talked a lot about the banking system, but this goes beyond the banking system into the non-bank financial system, which, for people listening to this, is your savings. Uh, it's creeping in there as well. So it's creeping in bit by bit anyway. Uh, but the thing that sort of ramps it up is an emergency. Look, a bank collapse is an emergency. The, the involvement of the Swiss state in the banking system probably, you know, I know they were involved in 2008, but this is on a whole different level. These are the sort of emergencies which warrant all of these things. So I think that's what we're going to get. Now, the biggest, the biggest emergency of all would be a sudden spike in government bond yields because they simply couldn't live with the consequences of that. So that would be another example. So we need a national emergency, but it seems to me we've got plenty to choose from. <laughs> and also, it's, it's happening anyway. It's happening. It's just the sheer exigencies of trying to live with this much debt mean that it's sort of slowly happening. I'd put it this way. It, the way it happens at the minute is like whack-a-mole, which is an American thing, but I think we all know the, the consequences of that. So every time a problem picks up, the government comes along with a great big hammer and whacks the problem. And uh, the difference in this game is there's no there's no limit to the amount of hammer. So that hammer stays down, then it comes up somewhere else, and you whack that. Now, as you go around fixing each of these little holes in the dike, uh, you suddenly wake up one morning and realize you've fixed so many of them that you don't have a, you know, you don't have a system anymore. So that's where we are at the minute. I think they're rushing around trying to do something in, a, in a kind of piece by piece. I suspect that in the last, since the blowout of guilt yields, I see a moving hand here rather than someone playing whack a whack- mole I see a government, increasingly, that there's somewhere in there, whether it's in the Treasury or somewhere else, that realises the direction of travel has to be financial repression. So I think the best example of that in the UK is, I don't know if he's passed it yet, but Rishi Sunak was looking for the power to overrule all our our financial regulators, to push that power into the hands of the Prime Minister. Now the question is, why, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, this is not a power that he sought? So I think people are beginning to realise that, yes, you can go around and whack-a-mole, so it's happening anyway, but there could come a time when we have to do something more aggressive. And for me, it's, it's pretty obvious what that aggressive is, which is forcing savings institutions to buy government bonds. That's the core of a financial repression. We haven't taken that giant leap yet, uh, but where I think you know, since the crisis in the guilt market, there is evidence, I think, that someone realizes that that is where we might end up. And they're preparing to have to take that leap to stress this is not a UK problem. It's the entire developed world. And actually Japan might have to go first in terms of that major jump.
1: That's that's fascinating. And and also just if we're thinking about an end game or I, I know there's never an end game, it's all, all cycles, I think, really. But um where where do we end up at the at, at the end of this? Is
0: there a kind of happy place? <laughs> well, the, the end so there, there is one happy place you end up, which is a lot less debt to GDP. And uh, so we could at least go back to the last time, see where we ended up. So where we ended up in the 1970s, after having done this for a very long period of time. So good news, by the end of the 1970s, debt to GDP was very low. Government debt to GDP reached its low basically the day that Margaret Thatcher was elected. So she inherited a very clean balance sheet. So that's the end of the cycle. Sadly, in the last 10 years of that cycle, uh, we got something we'd never seen before. Uh, So new was it that we had to invent a new name for it. uh, And the name was invented by, man who was Chancellor of the Exchequer, very briefly, called Ian MacLeod. And he invented this thing. I think it was 1966 he invented the term called stagflation. Because throughout history, a recession brought down inflation. And then suddenly we find recessions where inflation didn't come down. And people were nonplussed by this. I think the monetarists had the right answer to that, by the way. But anyway, at the time, they were nonplussed by that. And really, one of the reasons was a consequence of financial repression. If you misallocate capital so badly for so long, eventually you find yourself with the twin evils of high inflation and high unemployment. I think that's how it ends. But I want to stress, it could take a very, very long period of time. We do not have stagflation. People keep using that phrase all the time. But stagflation is high unemployment and high inflation. And most of the developed world is living with incredibly low unemployment. So when the time comes when you get those two evils together, that is really something that the people can't cope with. You know, One of the great surprises, I think, of the Thatcher revelation was that uh, you know working class people voted for it. But that's because they couldn't stand high unemployment and high inflation. I think we can we can get it. We can stand one of them, but we can't stand two. So let's see how long it takes to get. You know, we discussed the capital cycle. How long does it take to get this massive misallocation of capital? How long does it take us to get to true stagflation? And that, I think, is when it changes. And I, you know, based on history, that'll be a time when our debt to GDP ratio was probably a lot lower, and we're ready then for another revolution. But it's a long cycle. It's not a. You know, you said it's all cycles. We could have three or four business cycles inside that long cycle. But I suspect that is where it will end again, but probably a long way off.
1: Terrific. Well, Russell, we have covered a lot and um, (laughs) it's been truly fascinating and great to have you on. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.